Now it begins. For real. Good evening and welcome to the first lesson of Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. Thank you all for joining us. And we always have to give a yashikor to addition to Chaimushka, as we just mentioned, for preparing uh, the scrumptious food. Thank you, Chaimushka. We also have to give a thank you to our course sponsor, who really uh, made this happen. Um, Lake Lawn Metairie Funeral Home and Cemeteries, a dignity memorial provider. We thank them for their uh, generous uh, contribution and uh, sponsorship towards this course. Thank you to the staff of Lake Lawn, um, Stephen Sundheimer and Billy Henry and all the staff for all that they do for our community. And thank you for your uh, generous support to the Chabad Jewish Center. So thank you, Lake Lawn Metairie. <clears throat> so welcome to this course. It's an important course. It's an important groundbreaking course on the most sensitive issue, an ancient mind-boggling hatred that continues to cause Jewish people much grief and suffering. It's about time we have to have a course on this topic. Now, the idea of anti-Semitism is ancient. When Jews, since Jews were around, there was anti-Semitism. Well, so were the jokes about anti-Semitism. Because the Jewish people, that's their, their approach with everything with humor. For example, when Alexander, the Tsar Alexander in 1881 was assassinated, his entourage was blown up, I think, by a bomb, and he was killed. And one of the officers turns to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, you, the Jews, must know what's going on. Who did it? How did it happen? The rabbi says, listen, I know what's going to happen. The Russians are going to blame the Jews and the milkmen. So the officer says, why the milkmen? And the rabbi replies, why the Jews? <laughs> or you have Moshe and Esther, the newlywed. They were just married. It's, a, it's a, a year after the marriage and she's expecting a baby. And these are observant Jews, Shabbos observers, and they don't drive on Shabbos. However, we know that when we have a baby or anytime there's a medical emergency, if you have to go to the hospital, you got to call a doctor, you got to take care of your health. Me and Chaimushka experienced this uh, two out of our six kids. We went to the hospital on Shabbos. And so they call a taxi and they want to minimize any type of Shabbos uh, uh, violation. So they asked the, 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 the dispatcher, Please send a non-Jewish driver. Okay. The driver shows up. They get into the car and they hear this, the, the dispatcher this dispatcher ask the driver, so did you pick up those two anti-Semites? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the way Jews approach a sensitive topic. It's, not, it's obviously a serious topic. It's not a topic that we're going to laugh on. Obviously, um, it's a serious issue, an issue that many people have suffered, have been killed, have been per persecuted for all this time, and even, even smaller acts of anti-Semitism happens all the time. Many of us experience it, and uh, we have to deal with it. We have to talk about it. So just a few, a few things um, as we go into this. First of all, like, like always, I'd like this to be a discussion. If you have any questions or comments, please. I'd love to hear, obviously, we need, if the time allows, but we, I'd love to have a, um, 
a, a, a conversation. So if you have any comments or questions, please uh, don't hold them in, but we could, uh, we could discuss them together. <coughs> the idea, the concept, the phenomenon of anti-Semitism has been here since the Jewish people have existed. The first Jewish person, Abraham, already encountered anti-Semitism. They already said, Abraham is from the other side. You're not part of us. You're not one of us. You're different. And they, and they, and they dealt with him differently. They had problems. And Isaac and Jacob and the Jewish people, Egypt, we know this, right? It's, 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 in, our, it's in our history. This is who we are. It's ever since we've been around, there have been anti-Semitism. And the prophet tells us that anti-Semitism is going to be here for the foreseeable future till Mashiach comes. One of the promises What's going to happen in the time of the Messianic era? Then the Jewish people will live in peace with their, with their neighbors. It's a prophecy of the Messianic era. So we're not expecting to defeat anti-Semitism. Perhaps we could diminish it. We can maybe have it under control. But we're not expecting to fully, fully get rid of it. What we're going to focus on is how to outsmart it. What is our approach? What is our attitude towards this phenomenon of anti-Semitism? And I know we've, this is a topic, it's not a new topic. It's a topic that we've thought about and contemplated about. We've read books about, we've been to seminars, we've been to lectures, been there, done that. Rabbi, what are you going to teach me? What new thing, what new concept are you going to teach me? Anti-Semitism, We've been talking about it all, all, all along. And the truth is, yeah, I'm sure there's many, many concepts that you, that, that, uh, you already thought of and we already, uh, we, already, we already know. But first of all, you always hear something new, some new, new nuggets, some, something to add to our, uh, to already our knowledge on this topic. But at the same time, I really think that we're going we're gonna, to um, introduce a, a new angle to this topic. An angle that um, is really a, a very optimistic angle, an angel, angle of Jewish pride. And yes, of course, we are going to talk about Jewish faith in God, obviously, as part of the discussion. But even with faith of God, it's not just, hey, have faith in God, and that's it. That's the answer. We don't need a four-week course in that, because I can tell you that right away. Have faith in God. But with, we'll introduce some depth to this concept, and we'll see how having faith in God in this manner, could actually change the way we go about reacting to anti-Semitism. So, 2012. How many of you are old enough to remember 2012? Chamushka <laughs> and I moved to, to, to Metairie 10 years ago, September 2011. And when we, I just moved here, I was like, like they say, I was green. I was new to this concept to teach classes, to meet people. And I was, was very, very shy and um, still a little shy. And uh, I, I started giving classes about six months after I moved here. And Rabbi Nemes was the first one, was the one who was giving the, the more formal JLI classes. And then in 2012, there was an opportunity for me to give a class. It was my first JLI class. What was the name of the class? Being a Jew in the free world. I don't know if any of you here have been to that class. 
was a phenomenal six-week course, being a Jew in the free world, talking about the, the original Jews coming to America and some of the struggles that they had and kind of studying it and lesson that we can learn for today. It was, in, it was interesting, historic and uh, you know, powerful messages for Jews in America. One of the classes was a class on anti-Semitism. And I remember that class. The tone of the class was anti-Semitism is something that the Jewish people experienced in the past. And yes, there are still incidents today, but today, thank God, we're living in a place in a time where it's not something which is the front and center. It's something that we know it happens every once in a while. There's an incident, maybe in Israel or certain European countries, but here in the States, it's not something that we're dealing with on a daily basis. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I think it's uh, safe to say that over the last 10 years, there's been a major uptick in anti-Semitic incidents throughout the world, in Europe, and also in the, in, in the States. Now, we're not going to focus on all, on all the data, but I think it's important just to know the reality. We can't bury our heads in sand. We have to know what is the reality. So we are going to start to open your, your books to page three. And by the way, these are beautiful new books. They're colored, many different diagrams and many different graphs. It's a beautiful book for those who have uh, who are just coming for the first class and are, and are not planning to continue. Please enjoy the book, but be careful um, not to write in it if you're not going to, going to continue for the course. If you're planning on signing up for the rest of the course, which I highly, highly recommend that you do, then, of course, have at it. You can scribble all over your book and write your notes, etc. We also have extra. We also have extra copies for those who don't have a book. Um, we have some extra copies of lesson one. Okay, so <clears throat> figure one point one and figure one point two, just to kind of go over it quickly, the campaign against anti-Semitism in, in Britain has concluded, has conducted an annual research into the prevalence of anti-Semitism in Britain. And in 2019, they found that a very high percentage of Jews in Great Britain either want to leave the country because of anti-Semitism or they don't feel comfortable showing, living as a Jew in the open because of anti-Semitism. And that is a great rise from previous years. Anti-Semitism in the United States, you see on page 5, 1.3, you see that just from 2019, this is from the ADL, anti-Semitic incidents in 20, uh, 20, 2009, just over 1,200. 10 years later, 2019, we're talking about over 2,100. So we see that there definitely is an uptick. I'm not an expert in reading data, but this is what the ADL teaches us. This is what they, this is what they tell us. They know even, we know some, some of the big stories that happened recently. Just last week, we celebrated the yard site, the day of passing of 11 Jews who were murdered. They were shot dead in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life. Third yard site was just the last week. A few months later, we know the shooting that happened in Chabad of Poway in California, where they shot and killed a woman. And the rabbi lost his finger and, other, and, and, and one or two other congregants were wounded. We know locally, the North Shore had an incident a number of years ago where someone uh, sprayed graffiti, uh, anti-Semitic graffiti on the North Shore, North Shore um, congregation, the synagogue. And there are smaller incidents. Just the other day, 
My brother-in-law was driving down the street on Bonneville and he saw a swastika painted on something. Right? These things happen. It's around. It's, it's real. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? So it's important to note that although we're giving a course on anti-Semitism, the goal over here is not to be bogged down by the data and by, and by the negativity of it and feel like, wow, this is terrible. This is awful. And even more so, we all know how it's important to remember what happened to us, whether it was the Holocaust, never again, right? And we should fight and we should lobby and we should do whatever we could do. And there are beautiful organizations that are dedicated, whether it is the ADL, whether it is APAC or other organizations that they are fully, fully focused on garnering support for Jewish causes, for Jewish people, for Israel. And I'm sure it helps. At the same time, as a Jewish person, we also have to realize that we shouldn't identify ourselves by, by the fact that we are fighting anti-Semitism. This is who we are. This is the sum total of our Judaism. In 2013, there was a Pew Research, a pretty famous research uh, survey because a lot of interesting uh, uh, findings. And they asked people, what's most important to them as Jew? You see this on page eight. What's essential to being Jewish? 76% responded that remembering the Holocaust is essential to being Jewish. Now, I'm all for remembering the Holocaust. I was disappointed that on the bottom of the list, we have observing Jewish law, eating traditional Jewish foods. Come on. Chalant, kavilta fish. Wow. Chicken soup. That's not important. Being part of a Jewish community. 33%. Remembering the Holocaust, 76%. Text 1A. From Deborah Lipstadt, who wrote a book on anti-Semitism, and she dedicated her life to really to, to, to study and to kind of analyze this, this phenomenon of anti-Semitism. <laughs> on page 9. Most Jews will immediately step forward when Jews anywhere are being attacked by anti-Semites. This is, of course, as it should be. What is regrettable, however, is that for some Jews, the fight against anti-Semitism becomes the sum total of their Jewish identity. Recently, a most respected Jewish communal leader lamented to me that he regretted not having educated his children about Jewish traditions and culture. He was, however, very proud of the fact that he had embedded within them a total intolerance for anti-Semitism. His kids were prepared to be at the barricades to, be, to do battle against this hatred and many others as well. His comment made me sad. Anti-Semitism has become the drummer to which the family's Jewish identity marches. Here's a pretty uh, interesting line. They know of Jew as object, not as subject. In other words, what is done to Jews becomes far more significant than what Jews do. This well-intentioned Jewish father has deprived his children of a rich and multifaceted legacy. They have been taught to see themselves mainly as perennial victims. They cede they, uh, to the, the oppressor control over one's destiny. 
it leaves many Jewish, many Jews, including this man's children, aware of what to be against, but not what to be for. In, in, uh, in, in January 2020, right before the pandemic, there was this large rally in, in a, solidarity, a solidarity march after numerous incidents of anti-Semitism in the New York, New Jersey area. There was a, there was a shooting or a stabbing in Muncie on, on a Hanukkah party or something, and a few other things. There was, I think, 100,000 Jews and, and many non-Jews and many <coughs> community leaders, politicians, came to march on a bridge, I believe, in New York. No hate, uh, no, uh, no hate, no fear. And Barry Weiss, a journalist, used to work for the New York Times, she spoke, phenomenal speech. One sentence from that speech, text 1b, the Jewish people were not put on earth to be anti-anti-Semites. Are we anti-anti-Semites? Of course we are. We should be. We have to be. But this is not the sum total of our Judaism. So this is just to... Uh, to explain that although this course is obviously going to talk about the important fundamental concepts of anti-Semitism, we're not here to direct our entire Jewishness towards the fight against anti-Semitism. The goal is not to get bogged down in negativity, rather to answer some of these important questions. So if you look in, uh, on page 11, some of the questions that we are going to deal with tonight and over the next four weeks, or three weeks after tonight. So for example, question one, what are some tools for coping with fears triggered by anti-Semitism? What role does faith play in addressing anti-Semitism? These two questions we're going to deal with tonight. What are the best strategies to reduce anti-Semitism? We'll discuss this next week, some strategies. What are the root causes of, of anti-Semitism? How does identifying these factors impact our efforts to prevent the hatred? Also, we'll discuss question three and four in lesson two. How can we counter Israel-focused anti-Semitism? And how can we determine when criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic? Every time we criticize Israel, is that... Amushki and I sit around a table and I criticize Israel all the time. I hope I'm not an anti-Semite. But uh, the point is that when do we, when does someone consider this as anti-Semitic because you're criticizing Israel? I'm curious that you're because I don't remember doing that. <laughs> I never criticized Israel? Bibi, Bennett, this guy, that guy. You know, Israel's not perfect, right? It's, uh... <laughs> That's like saying you criticize America because you criticize the politics. That we'll discuss Israel bias in lesson three. How can we forestall well-meaning Jewish youth from unwittingly lending their voices to anti-Semitic agendas? A very important discussion that also will be discussed in lesson three. What's the best strategy for dealing with public figures who take an unfavorable position towards us? Also to discuss in lesson four. So these are the questions that we're going to discuss. These are important questions. Important questions. Tonight. What we're going to focus on is our internal attitude to the phenomenon of anti-Semitism. Before we get to strategies, before we get to Israel, Israel bias and all that, we have to have the proper attitude. If we don't have the proper attitude, we can't deal with the rest of, with, with the other issues. 
So what is, from a Jewish perspective, what has worked in the past? My grandfather, as I'm sure many of your grandparents or great-grandparents who were in Europe, who uh, encountered and experienced openly anti-Semitic acts from even from the government and from neighbors and friends. My grandfather lived in Russia and he was a religious Jew and his parents wanted to send him to a yeshiva, a Jewish school. But in communist Russia, it wasn't allowed. He had to go to the communist school. So they were hiding him in basements and cellars. He was getting together with some other Jewish kids and they were learning a few weeks over here and then they got wind of their hiding place, so they had to move to a different town. They moved they, 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 a few months over here, then a few months. And eventually, he was caught. He was arrested. He was put in prison. He was sent to an orphanage. He escaped, and he continued. What got them going? What worked for them? What worked for our ancestors, for the generations and generations in the past who continued their Judaism? And thanks to them, we are here today. What worked for them? And we'll see, perhaps it may work for us as well. So what was their attitude to this all? So let's begin. Again, any questions or comments, please. I'd love to, uh, love to hear. So we'll start with an attitude which is an, a natural response internally to anti-Semitism is what? Fear, anxiety, especially when it hits home and something nearby. When you, when you know the people involved or if it happened to you. Yeah, I'm a proud Jew and I'm confident. I'm a... At the end of the day, we have some fear, we have some anxiety. It's never comfortable. I was actually in Germany a number of years ago. And just being in Germany already kind of, you know, that, that itself rubbed me the wrong way. But I was there, I was there for a few weeks, meeting other Jews there. Someone walked by. I was just standing in the corner, waiting for the lights. And he like clears his throat and spits right in front of me. Now I kind of like smirked because like it was actually pretty like comical, like, okay. Like, what, well, you know, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? You know, <laughs> but it kind of made me very uncomfortable and kind of anxious being around people because it's very uncomfortable to be around people who you know dislike you and not nice to you. So how do we deal with this fear, with this anxiety? So text two from the Talmud. And interestingly, the Talmud quotes a book which is called the Book of Ben Sira. It was a book that was written in the Second Temple era, 20, 20, over 2,000 years ago. But it was not included in the books of the Tanakh, in the Torah. And the Talmud quotes a passage from this Book of Ben Sira. And the Talmud says, because we find a similar idea in the, the works of King Solomon, so we know it's a true concept. Text two. It is stated in the book of Ben Sirah. Do not allow anxiety 
into your hearts. For anxiety has killed the mighty. King Solomon said the same. If there is anxiety in your heart, quash it. Now, this is not to, take, not, this is not to be taken for granted because there's a, uh, a, a theory that says, no, let your feelings be. If you're sad, be sad. If you're happy, be happy. Let it pass. Don't try to control it. Don't try to manipulate it. King Solomon tells us, quash it. Anxiety isn't help, helpful. Excessive worrying cripples the person. It's debilitating. There was someone here in the community a number of years ago who, I remember this, it felt like every day. Every day he would say, Mendel, I was in a supermarket and a guy yelled at me, whatever, dirty Jew. And then the next day, I was here, and the, and, the, and, the, and the guy in the store, and there, the guy, the co-worker, every day there was something else happening. And I'm like, listen, I lived here for 10 years. I, I don't know. I know this anti-Semitic act, but like every day, wherever you're going, I mean, like, like the idea is someone who is extremely anxious about something will see this in everything. The other day, I was driving down the I-10. I was speeding. I got a ticket. I turned to Chaimush and said, what an anti-Semite. Of course not. The point is that if this is the way we're wired, we're going to see this in everything. It's, it's unhealthy. And what does it say to our youth? Where they always feel the negativity, they always feel like, the, oh, it's, it's scary, it's, it's fearful. It's not healthy. It's definitely not healthy. So how do we deal with this fear and this anxiety that one may have So we'll give three points, three points, things, three ideas to think about that could maybe lower our anxiety level. There's once a person who always used to worry. He was, he was a worrier because he owed his neighbor, Moshe, $30,000 and he had no way to pay back. So all day long, he was pacing back and forth. And his wife said, Yankel, what's going on over here? He said, I don't know what to do. I owe him $30,000. I owe him $30,000. I have no way to pay back. I don't owe him money. One day, Yankel walks home and he's peaceful. He's calm. He's relaxed. And his wife said, Yankel, what happened? You paid him back? You, you won the lottery? What happened? He says, no. I hired a professional warrior. <laughs> I'm paying him $25 an hour. He should worry for me. Yankel, where are you going to get the money for, to pay him? <laughs> Says, why should I worry? I hired him, let him worry. <laughs> so what is, so what's the deal with worrying? What's the deal with anxiety? So point number one, something to think about. We are all sitting here, 2021, sitting in a synagogue, sitting Jewish people together, studying Torah. It's a beautiful thing. A thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, no one predicted this. It makes zero sense. It's a historical anomaly that Jewish people survived all that they had gone through, the persecution, the enslavement, the torture, the history of the Jewish people, the, 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 the the exiles from here to there, from Spain, from Israel, from wherever they were, 
and we're still around. What did Mark Twain say? The, the ancient Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Romans and the Greeks and all. No one's around. No one's here. They lived for hundreds of years. They were mighty. They were strong. They ceased to exist. The Jewish people seemed to be always very weak. They were scattered and they were never had their own, you know, in Israel they did, but since 2,000 years, they had no army, nothing, right? And we're still, we're still around. We're still here. The fact that we are here itself is a miracle. And we, each and every one of us, we are part of this miracle. Think about that. It's not, there's a miracle, God made a miracle, and he split the sea. We are part of a miracle. We are a walking miracle. The fact that we are here, we are alive, and we're Jewish, and we're proud, that itself is a miracle. Think about that. It could help boost our pride. In the year 1168, in Yemen, almost a thousand years ago, the Jews of Yemen were confronted with a problem. What was the problem? A fanatical Muslim became the ruler of Yemen. And he decreed, he decreed on all the Jews that they, they must convert to Islam. Okay. Been there, done that. Happened many times. But in addition to that, there was a... a some, a, some Jew, Jewish rabbi, claimed to be a rabbi, who actually did convert to Islam in Yemen at the time. And he was preaching to the Jewish people that this is the right thing to do as a Jew. And he came up with the whole theory that Islam already uh, actually preceded um, uh, Judaism and really all Jews should be Muslim, a whole theory. And the Jews of Yemen were very, very confused. They didn't know what to do. And to, to throw into the mix, there was also some type of false messiah at the time, also in Yemen. And they were very confused, very tzemished, as they say in Yiddish. They didn't know what to do. They had a lot of pressure. They sent a letter to Maimonides. Maimonides was not, was not living in Yemen, but he was living know, in Egypt or wherever he was at the time, and uh, in Spain. And um, what do we do? Give us some guidance over here. And Maimonides wrote back a beautiful, beautiful, a long letter of encouragement to the Yemenite Jews. We see this in text four. And he gives an interesting explanation to what it says that the Jewish people were blessed that we will be like the dust of the earth. I want to read this inside, at least the first paragraph of text four on page 15. Page 15. God assured our father Jacob early on that although the nations would enslave his descendants, treat them cruelly, and subjugate them, his children would survive and endure, whereas those who enslaved them would eventually disappear. God told him in Genesis, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, although they are destined to be trampled and downrodden as everyone tramples the dust of the earth, they will overcome and triumph in the end, just as, to continue the analogy, the dust eventually rises over those who trample upon it when their corpses are buried, so Israel will remain in existence, whereas those who have trodden upon her will not. 
This is what Maimonides is writing to them. Don't worry. You're part of this miracle. You've been part of this blessing. You, you, Judaism will survive. You will survive. Stand strong. And eventually that gave them the confidence to stand up to this, uh, to this leader. And they did not uh, give in to the conversion. And, 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 and luckily, things changed over there and they were able to, to, to remain Jewish people. So that's one, one thing to think of. Yes, there was anti-Semitism anti, anti for thousands of years. But Jewish people are still here. And we will be here just as God is eternal, so to our Jewish people eternal. So we think about this, we can minimize our anxiety. That's point number one. Point number two, something else to think about. And this is going back to the data. And I, I don't love the data because data can be seen in so many different uh, angles and so many different ways, but data is data. So we mentioned data earlier from the ADL and from others that there's an uptick. But the truth be told, if you look at the entire picture, if you look at the full story, we see that historically we are actually in a much better place in regards to anti-Semitism. So for example, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, most Jewish people were living in a place where the government, there was systemic anti-Semitism in Europe, every, any country, and even in America. Today, we don't have that. In addition to that, the ADL had a study in 1964, and then recently as well, you see this in, uh, on page 18, where they had stereotypes about Jews, index questions. And they have a bunch of questions which are very uh, stereotypes that people that think that you know, Jews have horns and things like that. They ask many, many non-Jews in America what they think about Jews. Do they agree with these, with these, with these, uh, with these ideas? And in 1964, 29% of Gentiles believed in these stereotypes about Jews. I'm sorry? Of six or more of these of these statements. Okay, thank you. In 2019, it went down to 11 percent. Okay, from 29 to 11 percent, which means that there are less prejudice against Jewish people. More people, uh, less people harbor negative feelings towards Jewish people. And I think that, and I think we can, we can, I think we experience it. We understand this, right? Most of our neighbors, non-Jewish neighbors, co-workers, our friends are happy to be friends with Jews. We, and and, they're, and they're good neighbors, they're good people, friendly, etc. What's happening is that there are there's an uptick in the incidents, meaning fewer people are doing more anti-Semitic acts for whatever reason. So yes, there's an uptick in incidence of anti-Semitism, but there is less people who would be identified as an anti-Semite, right? So again, not saying we should be happy about that, but it's just, if, if we do feel anxious about the idea of anti-Semitism, so we should know, let's look at the whole picture. There's some data, obviously, that there is an uptick, but at the same time, at the whole picture, there is some positive data as well. And this leads us to question. Yeah, I'm just looking like, is there something that happened or some of these years? Like, why the 5% increase between like 1998 and 
wondering. Where, where are you? Which, which figure? Oh, I'm sorry, uh, 1.9. I'm still looking at the bar graph. So, yeah, I'm just going to say it fluctuates, like especially between 1998 and 2002. So, is there something historical? I don't know. That, I don't know. 1992 to 1998, it went to 8%. So, I haven't, I haven't studied these, these surveys, these studies. And I mean, right. once you look at the fine print of everything, so many things changes. Also, maybe the method of gathering exactly. information maybe has changed as well. I mean, I don't know how accurate it is, but this is just a general trend. I think it's a, just a general general idea. Um, uh, I'm sure you can look it up and see exactly all the fine print, you know, the back end to to to, to the to the study. <clears throat> 2002, is there's a lot more like anti-Muslim and stuff going on. That was also the, was it during the Intifada in 2002? Yeah. The, the Intifada in Israel. Was right after. Yeah. No, so there's a lot of like anti. Okay, that might be. That might be. Yeah. Look, look at the, look, 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 look what's going on in the world and see the trends. Yeah. The third point, and perhaps the most important point, is where we mentioned earlier the idea of faith. But let's take a few moments to understand what does faith over here mean. First of all, you have the idea that the Torah tells us. Numerous times. In fact, the most often repeated directive in the Torah is repeated over 100 times. Do not fear. Do not fear. You know that. Al-Tira, do not fear. God tells us time and again through the God himself, through the prophets, over 100 times, it, 100 110 times they counted in the Torah and the Tanakh. It tells us, do not fear. Obviously, the, the human nature is that we do have fear when something is going wrong. And the Torah has to tell us a time and again, do not fear. Al-Tira, Al-Tira. We sing it in our prayers as well. Al-Tira, do not fear. Why shouldn't we fear? It's great. We could try to control our anxiety. Don't be fearful, right? If you're ever nervous and your spouse told you, don't be nervous. Oh, finally, I could calm down, right? That's not the way it works. You have to use some type of mental exercise to calm you down. So don't be fearful. Why not? You know why? Because God is with us. One of the most famous, maybe the most famous chapter in Psalms is chapter 23. Good, Jeff. Chapter 23. You have text 6, chapter 23. And interestingly, if you... Uh, I'm going to see if I can share it. Because um, in the student book, they have a, uh, a, a picture. page 21, and they found in a cave in 1952, I believe, they found a manuscript of this psalm. Where was it found? It was found in, um, 
1952. It was dated to the first century CE. And it was in a uh, cave called the Nachal Chaver. And these are understood to be from the Bar Kokhba rebellion era. And these Jewish people, they were hiding in this cave. Why were they hiding? Hiding for the Romans. They were hiding for their life. They were scared. Or maybe they weren't scared, but they were, they were hiding because it was dangerous to be out there. And what's the psalm that, they, that we found in that cave? The psalm that talks about, do not fear because God is with you. So let's read it in English. And this is a little bit of a different uh, translation than perhaps you're used to. As a song of David, God is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He allows me to lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even if I walk in the valley of death's shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Which is interesting. If you just think about these words that King David says, lay down in green pastures, beside, uh, leads me beside still waters. Beautiful. It's nice. You walk down nice water, you go to the lake, you go to the levee, go on a morning bike ride on the levee, it's beautiful. It's relaxing, it's nice. This refers to the times in our lives or the eras in our lives where it's all good, we're happy, we're healthy, we have nachas from our children, we have food on the table, we have a good job, we have support, we have what we need, it's good. It's green pasture. God is there. We got to we got to give gratitude. We got to recognize this comes from God. And then King David continues, even if I walk in the valley of death's shadow, but even when it's a dark moment, it's difficult. It's challenging. It's painful, and I'm anxious. What does King David say? Fear no evil, because God is with me. Just knowing that someone is with you, someone cares for you, that itself diminishes our fear. We're nervous about something. We're, we're fearful about something. We speak to someone who has a listening ear, talks to us, and shows that feeling of empathy towards us. That itself helps the person. A social worker, not always it's about what they respond, it's just listening. Many times, just listening itself already, already heals the person. Just knowing that God is with us already does so much to minimize our anxiety. We're going to show a video of someone who really, really, this psalm, this concept of God being with him really changed a lot and gave him, gave him a lot of hope. Nathan Sharansky, the famous refusenik who was in prison and came, eventually came out to a prisoner swap. We'll see his story about this psalm, how much it had a positive influence on him. Let's get the In January 1948, in the dark hours of the Soviet Union, a child was born in Stalino, 
who was destined to symbolize mighty struggles. A bitter, global struggle between the bald eagle and the brown bear in the throes of their Cold War. A lopsided struggle between terrifying tyranny and human rights. Between brutally enforced atheism and the free soul of a believer. Between monstrous anti-Semitism and a proud Jew. And between the temptation to collapse and the superhuman will to survive. Nathan Sharensky graduated from Moscow's Physical Technical Institute before joining the underground human rights movement, reclaiming his Jewish heritage and emerging as a foremost dissident and spokesman for human rights. In 1973, Nathan took the calculated risk of applying for an exit visa to Israel. He was denied and rose to the forefront of Jewish refusenik activities. Well, I was in the middle of the struggle when the uh, situation looked very dangerous, when some of my friends in Helsinki group were already arrested, when new wave of repressions against Jewish activists was clearly prepared. And at this time, I received a note from my wife, Avital, through some American Jewish tourists. And together with this note, a small psalm book. And Avital writes that this psalm book was with me in the last year when I was trying to help you in different places in the world. And I have a feeling that the time has come to send it to you. And I opened the book and I can't read there anything because I never learned how to read these texts. And also uh, most of the words I don't know. Many of the words I know about 1,000 words, mainly of the, my, our daily struggle, prison, repressions, demonstrations, uh, but not these words. So I decided I don't have time for these small things when I'm very busy now in organizing demonstrations and press conferences, and put and almost forgot. In 1977, he was arrested on false charges of spying for the United States. But prior to the announcement of his verdict, he famously declared, to the court, I have nothing to say. To my wife and the Jewish people, I say, next year in Jerusalem. Sentenced to 13 years imprisonment, he spent the next 16 months, some 1,600 miles away from Jerusalem, in Moscow's Lafortovo prison, often in solitary confinement and in a special torture cell, before being transferred to a Siberian labor camp they bring me the list of things that they confiscated. And there is mentioned this uh, small black book, not in Russian. And I understand that they are talking about this psalm book, which was sent to Vital by Vital. And then I remember this note, which is sent. And I demand that they'll give it to me. And it was a long struggle. Three years after I was arrested, they returned this book to me, together with the telegram, from my mother that my father passed away. And it's, of course, it's difficult when, uh, it's always difficult, but when you cannot be with your family. And they decide that the only thing which I can do, I will be reading this psalm book until I understand. And so I'm reading these hundreds of thousands of words where I cannot understand where the sentence begins and ends, and can't understand more than half of the words. 
And then simply comparing between different places of these words, I try to find out the connection between them. And it so happened that the first phrase from all these hundreds of thousands of words was a short phrase of 13 very short words, which I understood fully. That that is the phrase. Gam ki elech bagei tzalamavet lo ira ra keta imadi. It's from the psalm Kav Gimel, and when you'll go through the valley of shadow of death, you'll fear no evil because you are with me. And that was very powerful. It was very important for me. And each time when they were taken from me, I was fighting and on hunger strikes, uh, refusing to work, uh, sometimes refusing to eat until they'll bring it to me back. He resisted and persisted with remarkable courage. His miracle dawned in 1986, when he was released in a prisoner exchange Leading Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Shimon Peres, welcomed him to Jerusalem. And even when they already took me from prison and replaced all my clothes, I was lying in the snow refusing to enter the airplane without getting this book back because I felt that all my strength is there. So that was the only piece of property which uh, I took from prison. And all these years, it's always with me and it gives me a lot of strength. The Hebrew phrases in Sharansky's Petit Black Book were authored 28 centuries earlier by King David, who reigned from the splendid city of which Sharansky dreamed, Jerusalem. It was he who crafted the powerful line of prophetic poetry that lent indestructible hope and undefeatable strength to endless generations of Jews in distress. Even if I must tread through a valley forged by death's own shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. A fountain of eternal confidence generated on behalf of each Jew in every century in the face of the mightiest and most monstrous obstacles. You are not alone. God is with you. Walk with confidence. The creator of the universe stands guard at your side. What a powerful story. He was able to do it, to really have that belief that God is with him and it got him through. Is it easy? It's not always easy for us. No one said it's easy. It takes contemplation. It takes deep thought. It takes prayer. It takes work. But it's something that's attainable. <clears throat> so that is one concept. So again, we may be anxious. We may be fearful. King Solomon says we got to quash it. How do we quash it? Perhaps thinking about we are part of this greater miracle of survival. Thinking about the data, which is also sometimes a little bit positive as well. And more, most importantly, remembering that God is always with us and therefore no reason to fear. Three points. And perhaps these are some of the concepts, ideas that our grandparents and great-grandparents were also 
aware of and thought and, and, and lived with, and therefore help them get through it as well. I want to go through, take this to a, a, a new level, a deeper understanding in this whole in this whole concept. If any, if any questions or comments before we go further to the next discussion, yeah. What I'm troubled by it sounds more like a way of coexisting with what has been as, around as long as we've been around. It doesn't sound like an attempt to defeat anti-Semitism, which will never happen. And what you're focusing on is a way to exist, not a way to defeat. Correct. Great point, Mike. So just to talk to that point, there are two things over here. There's one thing is, what do we do about it? How do we act? And that is something we'll, we'll touch upon soon. And we'll mainly focus on that next week, different strategies, how to react or what to do or, or to be proactive perhaps, and how to try to diminish or defeat anti-Semitism. What we're saying today over here, we're focusing on the internal attitude, which means at the, simultaneously, there's what we do about it, and then there's how we feel about it. So what I'm saying is that before we get to what do we do about it, we also have to make sure that we have the proper feelings and attitude towards it. So if someone is very fearful about this whole concept, this whole phenomenon, so then it's debilitating, and they perhaps will fail at acting properly because they are they're crippled, because they're so fearful. So that's why... <laughs> the first thing when we're talking about a four-week course, first we got to talk about our internal attitude towards anti-Semitism. It's happening. Before what I do about it, how do I feel about it? So we'll tell you, don't be fearful. Why? A, B, C. Different reasons why you should not be fearful. We're going to talk now a little bit about the, this concept of faith, how this also could change the way we react or the way we act and what we do towards anti-Semitism. I guess, again, next week we'll focus more on this, on the strategies, but also let's discuss how this deep faith in God also could change the way we act. And before we get into it, there's this concept of suspend disbelief. You know what that means? You go watch a movie, you got to suspend disbelief, which means instead of always thinking about, do I believe what's going on over here? Is it, is it a true story? Could this have happened? You know, thinking about your opinions while you're not going to enjoy the movie. Suspend disbelief. Enjoy the movie. Watch the movie. And then you can be, you know, you can, you know, you can critique it afterwards. And the same is true, I think, when we're discussing this concept. Suspend disbelief. Let's take a, a few moments to try to understand what the Torah has to say about this. And more importantly, let's try to understand how our grandparents or great-grandparents, what got them going? Maybe what worked for them? On a very personal level, I mean, my, my grandfather was arrested because he was being Jewish. He had to go to a, a communist orphanage, had to escape, and he was hiding for many, many years because of his Judaism. That's real, real anti-Semitism that he had to endure. He lived 
He survived. He moved to Canada. He raised a family. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. What worked for them? Let's try to understand what worked for them, and then we'll see if we could adopt that in our lives as well. So we're going to take a little bit of a unique approach to our actions, what, what we have to do, and, and, and it's really about our approach to what we're doing in order to secure, to, to deal with anti-Semitism. So obviously, just because we have faith in God, it doesn't mean that we should just sit around and be a couch potato and twirl our thumbs and say, okay, well, God will help us, right? You got to act. What's the famous line? God helps those who help themselves. Who said it? Trivia. It's not a passage in the Torah. I believe it's Benjamin Franklin. God helps them who help themselves. So yeah, great. Torah tells us you got to do your part, then God will help you. No, it's, it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. In order to uh, understand this, let's take a look at one of the major anti-Semitic incidents that happened in Jewish history, going back to ancient history. What, what would you say is the worst, the, the most severe, the most serious, most serious incident of anti-Semitism? Or, or an attempt of anti-Semitism in all of Jewish history. Destruction of the temple is definitely up there. Okay. Holocaust. Holocaust is definitely up there. Pogroms. Pogroms, definitely up there. Purim. What's the story of Purim? It was an attempt. You're right. The Holocaust is worse because, unfortunately, they actually killed millions and destruction of the temple and the pogroms. But the attempt of Purim. The story of Purim, you all know the story of Purim, the Jewish people and the Persian Empire, Ahasuerus, Haman, and they, 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 they pass a decree to annihilate the Jewish people, which means men, women, and children, every single Jewish person, wherever they are on the, on the face of the globe, will be killed in one day. Just imagine that. Stamp, it's, it's sealed. Uh, the, the, the decree is sealed. It goes out to all the uh, to, to all the all the communities. And what do the Gentiles do? Okay, I can live with that. I mean, it's mind-boggling just just to think about what was going on. Family, not family, but friends, people, your neighbors, your coworkers. I mean, I think I think people experience this, by the way, also in the Holocaust. We had last year, um, January. It's almost two years, uh, right before the pandemic. Uh, Irving Roth was here. If you remember, for those of you who heard him speak in the Jefferson Performing Arts Center, and he was dynamic, he was strong, he was he was, uh, was a powerful talk. Unfortunately, he actually passed away a number of months ago. Um, but he felt, you know, he, he he looked young, right? He looked like he's a thirty-year-old. You know, you know, yeah, he had he had that uh, uh, that presence. Either way, what did he say? One of the things that he said, and this is common in, in, in that era, that when you know his father had a, a, a business. Originally was a, an employee, then became a partner, a gentile, someone, I'm not sure where he was from, someone in Ukraine. And for years, he was a family friend. He came to their bar mitzvahs. They spent time together. They went on vacation together. A real, real loyal friend, it seems like. And then suddenly the tide changed and he just came and he locked his father out of the business. That was it. Stole, they stole the business. Now what? And it was, 
it was more than the, 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 the loss of the business was the betrayal of a good friend. Hey, we've been together for 30 years. We've been so good to you. What happened? I mean, just think about what went on in the story of Purim. Every single Jewish person had to be annihilated, had to be killed. So what do we do? What is our approach? How do we stop this? What do we do? So we have Mordechai in the story. And we have Esther, who is the queen. Ahasuerus, not knowing that Esther is a, Jew, is a, is a Jewish um, uh, a woman. Mordechai petitions Esther, you have to speak to your husband. Esther says, are you sugar? I should speak to my husband? It's not that he works here in the palace. Ahasuerus has to summon me. If he, if he doesn't call me, he might kill me just for coming into his chamber. Mordechai says, listen, you don't know why you're in this position. A young Jewish girl becomes a queen. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Perhaps this is why you were here. So, so Esther says, okay, okay. This is what we're doing. This is the plan. You hear? This is the plan. The plan is we're going to fast. All the Jewish people in the Shushan, we're going to fast and pray to God for three days and three nights. But here's the most powerful and, and, and mind-boggling thing. What does Esther say? You can see this in text 10. Esther says, go and assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan. Let them fast on my behalf. Let them neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. Here's the punchline. Here's the kicker. I and my maidens will fast likewise. Imagine that. Esther is fasting now for three days and three nights before she enters the chamber of Ahasuerus. Now, we know Ahasuerus. We've read the story of Purim. We've dressed up. We've done the gragger. We know, we, know, we, know, we know the story. Why did Ahasuerus marry Esther? Because she saw a beautiful, deep neshama within her. Because Ahasuerus was a superficial person. He was attracted to her beauty, to her charm. That's what, she, that, that's what he liked in her. How do we look after three days? After Yom Kippur, we could barely stand. Imagine three days of fasting and praying. Intense prayer. Can you imagine how Esther fasted? How does she look? Was she, was she attractive? Would Ahasuerus say, wow, Esther, I'm so glad you came to visit. If Esther wants to be diplomatic and speak to Ahasuerus in a way where he, was, he will listen to her, knowing Ahasuerus, why does she agree to fast? And it's an important question because we have to take a lesson to how to deal with our incidents. How do we go about dealing with problems and the Semitic issues? So in order to understand the story of Esther, I'm gonna try to give you a, the gist of a Hasidic philosophical concept. And it, 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 it's true with, with how to deal with security and anti-Semitism, and it's true with many areas in life as well. So bear with me for a few moments. Our relationship with God. Okay? We all know that God, we have faith, we have bitachon, we have trust, we, we believe in God. And we, be we believe that God provides, God runs this world. The conventional way of understanding things is that there are two ways of, two methods of the way God provides for us. Method number one is a miraculous method, one-sided, top-down method. For example, 
Jewish people are in the desert. They have no food. What happens? Mana falls from heaven. Was that a partnership? No. A partnership. It wasn't like, okay, we have a show board meeting. What are we going to do? We need a food. Okay, we're going to have mana from heaven. Right? That's not what happened. We understood it was a one-sided gift from God. Jewish people are in Egypt. And there's persecution. There's enslavement. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are are torturing the Jewish people, they're enslaving them, work hard, and they're hitting them, and they build bricks and all these things, right? What do we do about this? Board meeting again? No. What happened? God brings 10 plagues. Was that a partnership? No, it was straight from heaven. God brought plagues and saved the Jewish people. That's one method. Method number two is a partnership. What's the partnership? It's a 50-50. God provides the means and we take the means and we use it out. God says, okay, I'm, I'm providing security guards. You go hire them and you make sure that they are there. You hire the, the, the whatever, you, you do your, your work, you, you do what you have to do, get a job and I'll make sure that you get the blessing and you have to provide for your family, right? So seemingly, God does one to five, we take it from six to 10, right? It's a 50-50. God provides, we do the rest. God helps those who help themselves. So I'm helping myself, so God kind of also is, is partnering with me. This is the conventional way of understanding things. So it's a 50-50. There's either 100% God, or it's God together with me. And that is a Jew who believes in God. Okay, here's the Hasidic thought. And you see this in length in text 11. We're not going to read it inside. It's a deep philosophical th th thought that Hasidic teachings has in numerous places. And this is as follows. This is not the true way of understanding things. Method number two is also completely top down 1000% from God. What do I mean with this? God, for whatever reason, it's not, it's not for today's discussion, created a world where he wanted that he should be concealed. He didn't want that it should be miracles day in, day out. He didn't want we should live that there's money from heaven every day and there's plagues for any time that something's going wrong. Anyone, someone's yelled at me, free Palestine. I was actually in Philadelphia a few, months, a few weeks ago. Talked to someone outside, guy come by on his bike, free Palestine. Okay, great. And then what happened? Lightning came and hit them right, 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 right then. He died. It didn't happen because that's not what God wants. God is, doesn't do these miracles. God wanted a, a, a world of concealment, which means we should work with nature. Natural means. That's what God wants. So what God is doing is completely from up in heaven, but he wants that it should, be, it should come through a concealment, through a disguise. And we have to provide that space for God's blessing. In the words of Hasidic philosophy, it's considered a garment. We have to create that garment that the blessing of God should be enclosed in this garment. But it's only a garment, which means it's the person that's doing everything. But a garment helps us express ourselves. We have a garment, we have clothing of a doctor, we have clothing of a lawyer, we have clothing of a gardener, we have clothing of a nurse, of a soldier, right? It expresses who we are or what we're doing at the time. So the garment helps 
express God's blessing in a concealed manner. Which means, if we do not provide this garment, there, there, there will be no space, there will be no vessel to, to, for God's blessing to manifest itself. So us providing that garment allows God's blessing to manifest itself. Which means, is it 50-50 or is it 100% top-down? It's not 50-50. It's 100% top-down. We are just providing that space. So God helps those who make as if they help themselves. Because ultimately, it's God who is helping us. In other words, there's a threat. We have to hire a security guard. What is protecting the synagogue? The security guard? Has there ever been a case where there was a security guard and the security guard was not able to protect the synagogue? I'm sure many times. It's God's blessing, God's will, that this particular synagogue should be protected. But God doesn't want that this, the, when this evil anti-Semite is coming to shoot up a synagogue, that he should be struck by a lightning. God wants us to take natural measures to secure the place. So God says, I'm willing to, to, to give my protection, but I need you to make that space that it should be concealed in a natural measure. And this is what Esther recognized. Esther recognized that the Jewish people are in danger. There's annihilation, a decree of annihilation. And what is the way to go about it? Of course, diplomacy. But diplomacy is a garment because God wants us to take natural measures. We can't just sit on the couch and wait and say, God, protect us. God wants us to, 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 that we should take and, and follow the professionals and whatever, whatever has to be done. But this is all just creating a space for God's blessing to be a blessing in disguise. And therefore, Esther in this situation felt, for whatever reason, that she has to pray to God, she has to fast, because she has to work on the source of the salvation. Which means, in other words, when we are dealing with an issue, the conventional wisdom is that there are two paths, and both very important. There is the spiritual, and then there's the physical. So we have to do the physical. We got to do whatever has to be done. And also, as Jews, we have to also speak to God as, as well. That's the conventional wisdom. This is what we say. Have faith in God. Great. What we're saying now, take this a step further. It's not one practical and one spiritual. They're both practical. Which means in order for the practical side of things to work out, practically, you also have to speak to God. Because ultimately, it's not 50-50. Both sides of the coin are coming from God. The blessing is from God through natural means. So Esther, a very practical way of saving the Jewish people was to fast and to petition God. God, make my meeting with Ahasuerus work. It's not the meeting itself. But it's the blessing through the meaning. The Jewish people in that generation did not initially recognize this. And that's why they went to the party. Many Jews ate non-kosher. Because they felt, Ahasuerus is inviting us to the party. Wow, we've made it. This is our security. 
We have to be on good terms with Achashverosh. Which is true. We do have to be in good terms with our local uh, politicians. The Jewish people do have to lobby for Jewish uh, ideas. That's true. But we can't forget that that is the garment for God's blessing. So if we're going against God's will, the garment falls apart. Because ultimately, it's really the blessing in the skies through the garment. It's creating that space for the blessing to work. It's like the manna from heaven, but it's in the disguise through the garment. So this is what Hasidic philosophy teaches. And perhaps this is what helped the previous generation. This is what got them going. Why were they willing to risk their lives for Judaism? Because they realized that this is really what brings our security. Yes, we also need to do things in a natural manner. But at the same time, in order for that to work, you also have to petition God and solicit God's blessings. In other words, I'll give a very practical example. A child comes home from school crying. I was bullied in school because I'm Jewish. This morning we had someone here in the class who said, yeah, that's me. Happens in school all the time. He would be bullied because he was Jewish and he used to harass him. I'm sure a parent, the heart goes out to a child like this. Nebach, as you say, it's, it's a pity. I mean, we're in this, we're living in this, uh, in, in this reality, in this that, that unfortunately a Jewish child has to be harassed because they're Jewish. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? So one answer could be speak to the principal, make a meeting, speak to the teacher, maybe some introduce some curriculums. For the class, they should learn more about Judaism. Go to the media, make a big shebang out of this, right? That's perhaps one path. The other path could be, hey, Ingolet, do you know what it means to be Jewish? With some Jewish pride, let's let's study. Let's let's boost our confidence of who we are. Be proud of who you are. Maybe you want to wear a yarmulke to school. Maybe you want to start keeping kosher. Maybe you want to learn more Torah. Maybe you want to go to a Hebrew school, right? Be more proud of who you are. Work, enhance our relationship with God. Now, which it's not so. So, which method is the right method? Both, both are needed, but it's not. This is the spiritual. This is the physical. It's both together is the practical. Because we can speak to principles, we can make, go to media, we can do whatever, whatever, whatever we, we, the professional tells us to do, and either it's successful or it's not successful. What makes it successful? As Jewish people, we believe, what makes it successful is God's blessing. God allows us to be successful. How do we make sure this is successful? Through boosting our relationship with God. So what is the practical response to anti-Semitism is do natural means together and more importantly, going to the source of the blessing, enhancing our relationship with God. It's not just, we also need that, but that's probably even more important. I want to conclude with 
a story that happened in 1990. In New York, in Crown Heights, the address is, what's the address in Crown Heights? 770 Eastern Parkway, thank you. By the way, I think recently they said that that's the most famous address in the United States. Even more than um, 1600. I think it's either it's up there or it's even uh, more famous than 1600. Uh, so 1990, 770, a call comes into the secretary, Rabbi Klein. This was from Yitzhak Shamir, I believe it was president, it was uh, prime minister at the time. One of his uh, officers calls 770 a notice that they just got word that the PLO are planning imminent attacks on various synagogues and Jewish institutions in the United States. I believe including 770 was one, on, one of those addresses. And they're asking for a blessing from the Rebbe for that, that nothing should happen, right? Rebbe, so, so Rabbi Klein goes into the Rebbe's room, reports this to the Rebbe, and doesn't really get any reaction. Okay, he did, he did his thing, told the Rebbe, fine. A few uh, about an hour later, it was the afternoon prayer time, so the Rebbe would, would pray afternoon prayer at 3.15, so he goes to synagogue, he prays the afternoon prayer, prays Mincha, and afterwards he, he, he motions to a Rabbi Groner, who's actually Rabbi Zalman Groner's grandfather, that he wants to talk public talk, which was not so uncommon, but wasn't typical on a regular weekday. And he gives a talk, and this is on video, you can, you, you can watch it. The Rebbe says, we just got notice from the, that, that the PLO is planning attacks. What do you think the Rebbe said? What should we do about it? Look at text 13. Page 34. <laughs> Text 13, about an hour ago, I received word that the PLO commanded all of its international chapters to strike Jewish enemies and inflict bodily harm and much more. May it never come to be. We will not elaborate on such negative things. By the way, Jewish enemies are in quotation because the Rebbe did not want to say Jews. So he would just kind of like throw it back at them. The enemies want to kill the enemies, right? But that's just the way... Uh, it was an, an expression that, uh, that, that he said. And what, he, what does he say? We will not elaborate on such negative things, which is, which is a point that we made earlier as well. Don't let this bog you down. Don't, don't, don't get too involved in the, negative, the negativity of this all. It is therefore necessary to underscore God's abundant blessings to all Jews in all places for all that they need with an attitude of happiness and authentic trust. Special emphasis should be placed on the well-known directive, think good and it will be good. Positive thoughts lead to positive outcomes. So again, the next point is, don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. Think positively. Another point that we mentioned earlier today. And then he finishes off. It is also appropriate to utilize this information, not to frighten, God forbid, but be with a happy attitude, thinking positively, to add more in matters of Torah and mitzvot. What in the world does adding in matters of Torah and mitzvot have to do with the PLO wanting to bomb a synagogue? 
It's very much connected. If we understand this philosophy, it's very much connected. Because at the same time, the Rebbe didn't talk about this, but you know what they did in 770? They had a security guard. Rabbi Nemes told me today, I mentioned this to Rabbi Nemes that I'm going to talk about this incident because he was in New York at the time. This was before he moved. He, knew, he moved in 1990, but this was before he moved, I believe. Um, so he says, yeah, he remembers. It was in April 1990. He said he remembers there was a security guard stationed at 770 for, for a number of whatever. I'm not sure how long it was. They changed the windows of 770. They actually had bulletproof windows. The Rebbe's office was had windows to the outside to the front to Eastern Parkway, and they were afraid of, 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 a, of a shooting. So they actually changed windows and bulletproof windows. And they did various other uh, things that they did to protect 770. They took the advice of the professionals. They went in natural means and they did what they had to do to make sure all that we could do, that there should not be an attack on this building. But at the same time, what does the Rebbe tell everyone to do? Add in Torah and mitzvahs. It's not just, oh, he's a Rebbe. What is he going to say? Of course, he has to inspire other people to, 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 be, uh, to further their Judaism. It's not just a nice thing. He used out the opportunity. He wasn't using out the opportunity. He felt that this is the most, one, one of the, most important practical steps we could take together, side by side, together with everything else that we do, because this solicits God's protection. This solicits God's blessings. So we can hire all the security and change all our windows and do everything that we do and still fail. We need God's blessing. The blessing in disguise, God wants it to be concealed within the natural means, but we also have to solicit the blessing. And Sometimes you may see on Facebook or some incidents that people say, oh, there was something terrible happened. I believe here we had an we had a initiative after the, the, the shooting in, um, in Pittsburgh where we had uh, many women who uh, don't usually light Shabbat candles on Friday evening. They took upon themselves to start lighting Shabbat candles and other similar types of things. And you think, what's the connection? What's the, so you have an agenda. You want to be people to, 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 to be more observant. So then you, so you, you're using out these anti-Semitic incidents to, 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 to further your agenda. It's not, it's not just, it's an opportunity to get people inspired. This is a practical response. Together with everything else, it's part of the practical response to elicit God's blessings in the action that we take, that everything should work out for the best. So this is an idea and a thought for this week. Uh, our internal uh, attitude should not be fearful. And this also, the, our, our trust in God and, our, and, and believing that everything comes from God also helps uh, uh, shape our response. I want to just conclude with a short uh, video that kind of wraps this all up. Lesson 1. The Eternal People 1. Worrying creates dejection and ineptitude. To address an issue effectively, we need to reduce the anxiety associated with it. 2. The Jewish people are an eternal people. History has shown that despite the pain and suffering that we have endured, the Jews and Judaism always survive and thrive. Recognizing this is an important step toward feeling optimistic about our people and about our future. 3. To be realistic means 
to not lose sight of the fact that we are living in one of the best eras for Jews, and that we should be thankful for that. For the first time in millennia, the vast majority of Jews do not live under regimes that persecute Jews. And in some countries, while individual acts of anti-Semitism have risen, the data also show that fewer people overall harbor anti-Semitic sentiments than previously. 4. The ultimate Jewish answer to anxiety is bitachon. We are empowered to ingrain in our minds a trusting attitude, feeling that God is going to take care of us and that He will be with us even when we pass through dark times. In fact, placing our trust in God triggers the opening of channels for additional revealed goodness. 5. The Torah teaches us that the success of any of our endeavors is God's providence and blessing. Nothing in our lives is a mere product of nature. God instructs us, however, to create a garment through which His blessings can operate in disguise. Hence, we must take all the natural steps, whether to earn a livelihood or to protect ourselves from anti-Semites. But the blessing is entirely God's doing. 6. Accordingly, our efforts to engage in the logical methods of protecting ourselves are inseparable from our efforts to secure God's protection. In the Purim story, Queen Esther recognized this, and she therefore prioritized being worthy of God's protection over being attractive to Ahasuerus. Okay, next week, lesson two, no apologies. We will discuss what is the root cause uh, of anti-Semitism, why does anti-Semitism persist, and we'll talk some of the strategies, the best way to deal with anti-Semitism. Um, next week, same place, same time. Thank you all for joining. For those of you who would like to, to register for the entire course, please let me know. You can either do it online or you could just uh, register with me.